Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Rachel Adams, Chief Curator and Director of Programs at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Rachel Adams is the newly appointed Chief Curator and Director of Programs at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, before which she was the Senior Curator of Exhibitions for the UBR Galleries in Buffalo, New York. Adams holds an MA in Exhibitions and Museum Studies from the San Francisco Art Institute and a BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Her areas of research are varied, but include a focus on the crossover between contemporary art and architecture, performance and video, and new media practices. In 2018, she curated the exhibitions Ernesto Burgos, Implications, and co-curated Introducing Tony Conrad, a retrospective, the first exhibition of Tony Conrad's work after the artist's death. Her 2017 exhibition, Wanderlust, Actions, Traces, Journeys, 1967-2017, a 50-year survey of artists performing in the landscape, was awarded grants from the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts, with a catalogue by MIT Press. Forthcoming curatorial projects include solo exhibitions with Gillian Mayer, Louis Steeny, and Maya Dunetz. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What is curation? What is curation? Um, I would say being a curator is kind of like being a middleman between two different sides, right? Curation is kind of presenting a collection or series, you know, a collection of objects. So if you're a curator in a museum that has, you know, like the Jocelyn here in Omaha that has a collection of European painting, and then, you know, you're curating from that, you're pulling different paintings from there and presenting them. If you're a curator of film, you might want to show a, a series of avant-garde films, so you would, you know, sort of select those and present those in, in the public. I'm a curator of contemporary art, so I work with living artists to help them show their work in different places, so like the Bemis or like a university gallery or even sometimes outside in the public realm. I think for many people, they encounter art in prescribed places and in guided ways and in institutions that manage their experience in some way. And so I think the craft of being a curator can, to some degree, be um, behind the veil, as it were. How does one go about, well, let's be specific, how did you go about finding your way into the desire to be a curator? And then how does one actually go about becoming uh, an accredited curator? Well, I uh, went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I, when I went there as a freshman, I was hoping to be a photographer. I studied photography in high school and I uh, loved it and always had sort of a passion for that. So when I was in school, you know, that was kind of my foundation classes and all of those, you know, art history classes were kind of leading up to becoming a, you know, becoming some sort of artist. Um, but I never really felt that comfortable once I was actually in art school surrounded by so many amazing artists, um, especially my friends that I loved being around and seeing their work, but I wasn't feeling that I was doing, uh, that my work was at the caliber that theirs was. 
And one day, sort of the serendipitous story, I would say, I walked past this bulletin board and it said, um, it was sort of a, you know, announcement for a class and it was the beginning of the semester and it was called, um, running the student galleries. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Working artists, running the student galleries. And we had two student run galleries on campus and the description of the class was, you know, learn how to run these galleries, propose exhibitions, work with artists, build walls, all of these things. And so I went immediately to the registrar's office and signed up. And they actually told me, this class needs three more people. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And so I, like, quickly found my three friends. And I said, we should all take this class together. And so they signed up, which was amazing. And we made the class actually happen. And obviously, there had been some other people. And it was led by this artist, uh, Michael Ryan. He was sort of the faculty advisor for the student-run galleries, which had their own staff of students and then volunteers, um, all students. And all the work that was shown was either student or faculty was proposed and, you know, picked through the committee of people that volunteered for the galleries. So that class basically turned into my first curated exhibition because part of the, the final was to propose an exhibition. And then I started working there as a full-time, well, full-time employee. <laughs> I think it was 10 hours a week <laughs> when you're in school or 15 maybe. I did that for about two and a half years. Um, and when I left, I actually started um, with a friend of mine in an apartment gallery in Chicago and ran that. And so that was sort of how I kind of came into um, working, you know, the other side of, of the art world, the gallery curator side and less the artist maker side. I love this idea that you couldn't just sign up for this curating class and I know it's more detailed than that but you couldn't just sign up for that you had to market the whole idea to friends which to me feels very much in the spirit of a curator existing at the intersection between the artist and then the public as well and and how you have to turn from as it were one to the other tell me a little bit more about what it's like to exist in that space of transition or translation or operationalizing what the artist is presenting and then how the public perhaps uh, is going to experience that? Yeah, I think that's actually, that's a great question. No one has ever asked me that before. Uh, I, I love being in that space. I think that you really get to obviously have a relationship with the artists that you're working with or the group of artists that you're working with, especially if you're helping them to create something new, you know, commission a new work or present work that they've never shown before. Um, and so you really have kind of that one-on-one -on -one time with them. But then I know this from personal experience, and I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners do too, that artists are very self-conscious, right? And, you know, they're putting themselves out there, right? As many people are in different types of work that they do. But, um, you know, it, a lot of art is so personal. It can be frightening and scary, and you don't know how the public is going to perceive what you're doing or the critics or even the curator sometimes. And so, you know, not to say that it's about, like, making someone feel better, but it's really about um, encouragement and the excitement and being able to then translate that to the public and, you know, the way that you're interpreting um, or speaking about their work or promoting their work to, to different audiences and trying to get conversations started between who is coming in to see the work and what the artist is doing. And sometimes even 
literally between the two of them, right? Having those conversations in the space of the gallery or where the where the work is being shown. I really enjoy being in that place because you kind of get to pivot a lot between the two. You know, obviously when you work in an institution, you have not all the time, but luckily at Bemis, you know, you have support of other staff that can also help work in that space with you. So it's really great. I feel like there must be a lot of opportunities for anxiety and tension in multiple ways, but also opportunities for great fulfillment and amplifying the positive experience that, that anybody interacting with the exhibition can have. And so in terms of the tension, you have to navigate a relationship with the artist because it's their work, but you are being entrusted in some way with uh, curating that work. Mm-hmm. But then the public also perhaps has an expectation, realistic or otherwise, and how they encounter this exhibition also is something that, um, as well as perhaps critiquing the artist, they might critique the person who put the show together, which is which is you. Yes. And then you yourself have your own desires and needs. And, and I'm sure that there are moments when you think uh, the public doesn't appreciate your work properly and perhaps the artist is stubborn and <laughs> you know unhelpful um, and that also creates its own set of challenges so I'm seeing a vast array of delights and and also a vast ar- array of despairs <laughs> so I, I don't know if maybe you have any illustrations that you can um, instead of talking maybe theoretically well talk theoretically mm-hmm. about that but also if we have illustrations and share those too Sure. I'm, I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's very true what you're saying is that there are all these different, you know, angles that are being addressed here. The, you know, the artists putting themselves out there or myself as someone who started off being an artist and was very self-conscious about their work and didn't think that I was sort of living up to the standard that I was seeing around me, um, you know, and moving into more of the sphere of curating and that means interpreting, right? And interpretation can be really difficult sometimes because you you could be reading something into a work that an artist is not um, wanting you to read into it or happy with what you're reading into it. Um, And so, you know, as somebody that's disseminating information to your audience, it can be a little nerve wracking to, you know, be, okay, I'm going to write this press release or I'm going to write this exhibition essay and then send it to the artist for them to read. And then what if they hate it <laughs> or are like, like, that's not what I was thinking you were going to write, or that's not what the concept that I was, you know, really um, hoping to come across. So obviously I'm not doing my job as an artist the way that I want to. So, um, you know, that can be kind of a difficult relationship sometimes. You know, I really thrive off of the, um, you know, and I feel like I grow as a person every time that I do get to work with a new artist because they're bringing something new to the table. And then, you know, kind of thinking about the outward public and it's it's nerve wracking for myself when I open a a show, um, you know, and after doing all of that work, and just kind of sitting there and watching people react to it and, and hoping that they're reacting positively or excitedly, you know, and even if it's negatively, that that's something that you that I want to hear because I also was thinking, oh, maybe that wasn't exactly what should have happened there. And I can agree with what they're saying. I don't know um, if I have any, I'm trying to think of like a specific kind of example. Um, I will say I, I 
put together this exhibition um, in Buffalo when I kind of when I first arrived in 2016, and it, it was just this one uh, solo exhibition of this artist Ragnar Kjartansson. Um, I do have artists that have difficult names to pronounce, so I will say that. Um, and he's an Icelandic artist, and I had been I had shown a video of his in Austin when I worked in Austin, but um, this was this piece that I was absolutely stunned when I first saw it, which was um, it's called The Visitors, and it's nine different screens. He filmed it in this old house, like in the Hudson Valley, that was owned by the Astor family at some point. And he's um, he grew up as an artist. His parents were in the theater. He was a musician. His cousin is Bjork. You know, this is sort of a very small – Iceland is very small, so everybody's related. But literally, I think they're first cousins. Um, so he has this, you know, like this very beautiful aesthetic. And he found this house – that was still in the family, and he was able to bring musicians into every single room of the house. And, you know, each of them had their own camera, so every screen was a different room in the house. And um, he had written this song with his ex-wife. She was a poet, and he kind of put it to music about the, their relationship falling apart. So you can walk through the gallery and kind of feel like you're in the rooms of the house because the screens are very big. They're like 10 by 6 feet. And you're just surrounded by this beautiful music that's playing. And it was one of those experiences when I first saw it in New York that I just, I basically, I think I had to, I think I had like technically 30 minutes before I had to be somewhere else. And I just, I missed the next like three appointments because I couldn't leave. And um, I really wanted to show it in Austin when I lived there because it was such a musical city, but it didn't end up working out. So I was able to bring it to Buffalo. And when I we opened it, I just sat in the corner for two hours and just watched everybody else watch it. And it was the best feeling because the the sort of like wonder that came from it, especially from people that obviously didn't know his work, which was a lot of people in Buffalo at the time, or that had, you know, that just didn't know what to expect. And they may have heard the music kind of emanating out the doors of the gallery. And it was just so thrilling to be able to see that see how much I love that piece reflected in the people that were watching it just for that opening night. And I would do that occasionally, like once a week, I would go down and watch people. Sometimes I would just sit there and watch it because I could hear it from my office. And it just was one of those things that, I don't know, I always think about it a lot as sort of art can really like just put you in a place where, you know, you can feel all these different emotions by just watching something that you may have seen million, like I've seen that piece so many times in many different places too. And it's always installed a little differently, which is kind of exciting. Um, but the feeling I get is always this sort of like, I do not want to leave. <laughs> I like that.
what degree of autonomy do you have to drive the exhibitions that are being selected and presented to the public? Is this within uh, your sort of are these decisions you make, or is this something that you're told by an institution or a gallery, and then somehow you have to make it work? Mm-hmm. Luckily, I've I've had a good amount of autonomy um, over my career in terms of um, my supervisors, who usually is either, you know, like myself, now I am a chief curator, but before it would be, you know, when I was sort of more of a assistant or an associate, or just depending on where, you know, where I was working, but uh, it could be director. So it's really, you know, for me, I can bring the idea to whoever basically approves it, <laughs> whether that's a committee, luckily I haven't had to do that too many times, or, you know, just a supervisor who then is like, okay, well, what's the budget going to be? You know, is this going to work? And then sort of lets you kind of go off and, um, and do, um, do the show, whether that's a project with one artist or if it's, you know, sort of a thematic group show, just supports in the ways that they're supposed to support you or that you hope that they're going to support you. So I would say I've been lucky to have a fair amount of autonomy. I've never really been told, no, I can do something. It was more like, well, maybe we need to push that. It's it's a larger budget. Um, We need to raise the money. So obviously we need to kind of schedule it far out. And that's sort of something that just happens naturally, especially with small institutions where you just have to, okay, what are, you know, an exhibition making takes a really long time. You have to do a lot of research, sometimes a lot of traveling, um, and then the whole logistics and, you know, the timeline for you know, getting all the print materials out and announcing the show and getting the artwork shipped from wherever it's getting shipped so that, you know, the time period can be quite extensive. I mean, some shows I've I worked on for, you know, three to five years, depending on um, the show I just opened in, in Buffalo, where my nail polish matches the artwork. <laughs> um, that was a show we, you know, I offered to the artists in 2015 knowing that I didn't actually have a slot until 2019. And so, you know, things changed because her work changed a little bit, but I always sort of, we kept in touch and we kept talking about what we wanted to do and eventually opened the exhibition. So, It feels like there's a a really interesting balance here between what inspires you to see something, either in a theme or in an artist's work, that makes you want to pursue that creatively either because of the concept itself or because of this relationship that you're developing with an artist. And then the logistics that go together, you're talking about multiple years Mm -hmm. and issues as banal as insurance and security and transport, which seems so alien to the idea of this creative endeavor. So first of all, let's live with the creativity Mm -hmm. for a while. Where, Where does inspiration for you come from to come up with the the germ of this idea that then sprouts some years later into the exhibition? Right. Um, you know, it comes from a variety of places, I would say. It's, well, one, I'm married to an artist, so it's really nice to kind of be, um, be with somebody that's very creative on the daily basis. But I would also say, you know, I, people ask me like, oh, where do you find your artist? Or, you know, like, where do these themes come from? You know, it, it really just sort of depends. Sometimes it's just kind of it just something that's been brewing, you know, something that I've maybe have been like collecting. Like I have lots of bookmarks and links and articles that I print out and kind of file depending on, you know, what's happening. 
it could just be that I saw a show of an artist and I just loved the, I was floored by the work and I wanted to also do a show of that artist and um, making that happen. So it kind you know, it kind of comes from a variety of places. I'm, you know, I'm constantly looking at art. I don't really have any other hobbies, I would say, you know, um, vacations are really spent in museums <laughs> or galleries <laughs> uh, a lot of the times or, you know, sitting at the pool, which is really nice too. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's just, it kind of conversations happen. A lot of my very close friends are also curators or artists. So I know kind of in constant contact with what they're doing and obviously being in front of a, a screen all day does help sometimes because you can kind of like see new things and, um, yeah, so it's, it depends, but you know, I'm, I'm starting to work on an exhibition for Bemis for the summer of 2020, which will be timed because of when the election is happening. So that'll be, you know, a thematic group show that'll deal with a lot of sort of, you know, political and social issues that will be coming up, you know, and that are sort of obviously in the forefront right now, even so working with artists from across the country to sort of highlight some of those things. So maybe talk a little bit about the planning then for that exhibition sure. as a way to illustrate what the next two years of your life might look like as a curator. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really excited about that show in particular because I think that it will kind of really be multidimensional. But I would say that, you know, at this point, it's February, right, 2019. So it's kind of gathering data, <laughs> a little like data mining, you know, asking people for recommendations of artists, um, starting with some artists that I already know that I'm interested in digging deeper into. And then it'll be, you know, a period of more um, hands-on research where it's visiting with some of these artists, whether that's actually in their studio or maybe over Skype, having the sort of final ones possibly even come to Omaha and spend some time in the space if they're going to propose something that's very specific to the architecture of the gallery, you know, or just to kind of do a site visit if it's something that they really want to interact with a specific community locally in Omaha as well. So that will kind of, you know, take place over the next year, I would say, a little less than a year. Um, the idea is to kind of, you know, when you try to play on exhibitions, depending on how big it is and how much time you have, but, you know, hopefully you have sort of the, what we call a checklist, right? The, the works that are in the show, um, several months before. And I mean, more like six months is ideal, but sometimes it's just three, you know? So depending on when that happens, and then you can actually start both like doing all of the didactics, right? The press release, all of the kind of um, the exhibition essay, but then also arranging all of the shipping and, you know, those kind of like those very sometimes banal logistics and it takes so much time. I have to get three quotes from three different shippers and make sure, you know, like the timing works out and, oh, I, I actually need to make sure if this can fit into the door, you know, things like that really kind of take up, you know, and then you want to have several weeks to actually install the show and then open it and then you do all the programming. So it, it's like really can be um, quite, quite a lot of work. And that's just for one show because we have three rounds of exhibitions a year. So um, and sometimes there's more than one show at a time. Like next round, we'll have two solo shows of two different artists. So I don't know much about the human brain, 
But I think if I say left brain, right brain, mm-hmm. most people have a sense of at least the stereotype that comes to mind about this kind of analytical and creative thinking. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that uh, you're describing yourself as combined left brain, right brain <laughs> Ambidextrous person. brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's true. You know, you have to sort of have that creative side um, in terms of like putting together the concept, the idea, maybe even doing the writing or creating the programming around it, sort of creatively thinking like what could be the best way to disseminate sometimes what can be really difficult um, material to the public. You don't want to obviously dumb it down, but you want to be able to relate it to maybe their everyday life some way. So I think that's sort of the creative side of it for sure. But then, yeah, I mean, there's all the kind of more analytical, like, okay, like math and budgeting and space too, you know, really figuring out where things are going and the flow. And that can be a little bit more analytical depending on what works you have in the show and what the show is about. So, or that can be kind of creative too. So it's sort of, they go back and forth. I mean, I know how to creatively budget also. So, (laughs) you know, I'm like, I'm going to get that donated. So then I have an extra $500 to do this and so on and so forth. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Rachel Adams, Chief Curator and Director of Programs at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. So you talk a little bit about working with an artist to build a relationship and form your own interpretation of their work and what they're trying to communicate through their through their work, but also to to help the artist express that to a larger public. In what ways are you able to identify helping the public into an artwork or an art series or an installation in some way that perhaps without a curator, they wouldn't have been able to access the work in a, in a way that maybe the art needs? Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of different ways. Um, there's different ways that I've done it. You know, of course, I, I like to always have kind of that introductory text that might, you know, give an overview of what you're planning to see or what you're, you know, what you'll be seeing as you walk through the space. I've also... Um, especially coming from a university museum where, you know, sort of a teaching school where obviously students are your kind of main audience, students and faculty, is really being able to, especially in, you know, both group shows and solo exhibitions, um, 
maybe have more writing about specific works that are kind of anchor pieces so that those can really kind of be explained more um, outside of that introductory text. So we call those kind of like extended labels or even, you know, with the Tony Conrad show, which was really um, a show that was co-curated by myself and Kathleen Chafee from the Albright Knox. And we presented the exhibition at both spaces because Tony was a professor at um, UB, but we actually had an audio guide, but the audio guide was actually the artist speaking about his work. So that's sometimes a really great way if you can do that, whether that's actually auditory or if that's just, um, you know, maybe a quotation or something like that that can help. And then, you know, I think very much along the lines of exhibitions is sort of the public programming that goes along with them. And really being able to have um, kind of a multidisciplinary pr- approach to that. So bringing non-art people into the art space to then, you know, maybe talk about like their expertise through what is being seen or what is being shown. That can really work out well or at least expand maybe upon that. The exhibition that we have up right now is um, called I Let Them In, Conditional Hospitality and the Stranger. And the two artists are sort of dealing with, um, you know, sort of within this global migration crisis. And so we've been working with Lutheran Family Services that does a lot of work in the Omaha, you know, Nebraska region, resettling refugees and sort of their, you know, they've, they're coming in this week, actually, to kind of give a talk about what they do and what, how, you know, people can volunteer to to help some of these families that are being relocated here um, or mentor them or, you know, those kinds of things. And so it, it can show that there's a relationship between like what you might be seeing, which might be a little bit more conceptually, um, I don't know, out of touch. You know, you might not feel like you're, you're being um, like your life is actually interacting with that, with what you're seeing. It might be, but then if you can bring in someone like Lutheran Family Services that can talk about, well, we do this on a daily basis. This is, you know, a big part of what we do. And you can actually, you know, contribute. Then there's a nice way of being able to relate to what you might be seeing that you might not have had that relationship before. You're thinking in terms of multi-sensory aspects to how one encounters an exhibition but also in terms of how one goes about uh, the learning experience too, a number of different access points, and and it's multidisciplinary as well. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, We were just talking earlier this morning about, you know, Bemis, we have um, an artist residency program, which is what we're really known for, and we do a big open house, open studios event um, once every session. The artists that are residents can talk about their work and then they open their studios. People can kind of talk to them and really be face to face, which is so great. Luckily, we're able to do that. But on top of that, you know, we the exhibitions are open and we like to do activities that are kind of based around what we're doing uh, or what we're showing downstairs that might be, um, at least at that point, more family friendly um, because we do have a lot of kids that come to that event. So... I was mentioning that with, again, with that Tony Conrad show, you know, he was a musician as well as a visual artist, filmmaker, educator, all around Renaissance man. But he used to make these, his instruments, he would call them acoustic tools. And I said, you know, we, we actually did this workshop where we had an art educator, you know, just have a bunch of materials and based on what Tony had made, kids and everybody could just make their own acoustic tools. And that was a really super fun way to kind of really relate to what 
you know, seeing this object, which actually was a useful object to Tony, like he would make music with it, but in the exhibition space, it's just, you're just looking at it. Uh, so it's kind of nice to be able to bring that kind of practice yeah. in so that people can experience it that way. Switching gears a little bit, I think you'd have to be blind in our contemporary uh, moment to not see the issues around um, personal rights, civil rights, race issues, and gender issues mm-hmm. are extremely topical. Uh, and we're sort of seeing, I think, a shift in in how we as society see those issues. The art world, of course, is not immune to these issues, whether it's about harassment or race or gender. And I know that female artists are underrepresented mm-hmm. in, in major galleries. We know that um, there are probably fairly few museum directors who are female, and, and I think you know maybe some have been helped out the door more recently than others. Yes. I'm wondering how you as a curator see gender issues in the business of curatorial work and also how, how you see gender as an issue just in art generally. You know, that's it's definitely a good question. It's obviously a very pressing issue at the moment, um, but obviously has been for a long time. And it's funny because, at least in my generation, like I said, a lot of my friends are curators. Most of those friends that are curators in pretty like major institutions across the country and even, you know, in the world are actually women. But we're all, um, at least, you know, none of us are kind of at that level yet of like museum director, which I don't think I ever want to be in that position just personally. But um, yeah, you know, most of those positions are held by men and not men of color, right? And, you know, there's very few people of color in, in general. And that's definitely a big initiative that's happening, I think, in general. But also I, I see that a lot um, within um, within the art world most recently. Um, diversity um, fellowships that are really popping up, which are so great because we really need to be able to offer those things. Something that, you know, I was working on in Buffalo, unfortunately, didn't come to pass at that time, but hopefully we'll continue that work here. But yeah, I mean, I, as a, you know, as a female curator who is definitely interested in you know, showcasing work by all different types of people and generations and, you know, um, gender and race and location, you know, (laughs) I mean, I try not to discriminate in general. Um, I really do kind of, especially when I do big group exhibitions, like the Wanderlust exhibition, which had 41 artists in it, just crazy amount, you know, it was really important to me to be able to have a pretty much equal balance between, you know, between gender, between male and female, but also in terms of diversity, in, in terms of background and and race, because I think that, especially in a show like that, that's very much a large survey. It's best to, you know, survey in, in that sense, like the world that you're, you're experiencing um, and have those different, different voices uh, and different experiences. So, I um I think that it's something to always to try to be aware of as much as possible and kind of each of us try to do our part in in adding to showcasing how how diverse at least for me the art world is um and continue to make it even more that way. You went away and left me for another and now you're back. And you're trying to recover 
Until I had to discover That you went away And now he's your lover But girl, I need you Girl, I need you I got to have you in my arms Race, gender, sexual orientation, other issues like that, they're difficult enough uh, and they need attention, intentional attention. Mm-hmm. But art itself has always occupied a place that is on uh, the edge of social norms. I mean, the point of art is to not conform in, in many ways. And so you're dealing with difficult issues in a medium or a, a form that is designed to provoke some thoughtfulness. And so I'm wondering what your experience is and what your approach is to work that is challenging and whether you've had to confront issues of censorship or request that material or your approach to that be adapted or moderated or mitigated in some way. I've tangentially been part of things that have unfortunately been censored, not necessarily um, a project that I was heading, but been in an organization where that's happened. And this was actually much longer ago than what we're seeing, I think, now um, more recently in the media. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard question. I think that as a curator, I am providing, hopefully providing um, a platform for an artist to, to speak their mind and to, um, you know, obviously, like, I believe in freedom of speech. So um, that's something that I promote always. But I do think that it's, it can be really difficult for certain, you know, for institutions, no matter what the size is, because of the structure of how they're put together. You know, you have, you have, board members, you have funders, you have the general public, and really how can you provide the best way for the, both for the artist, but also for your constituents to experience something um, without censoring anything and, um, you know, without putting, wanting to put people in a very awkward position. So I don't know if there's, there's definitely no right way <laughs> to do that or to handle that. Um, you know, I think that transparency is really important. I think that's general. I try to be as transparent as I can. That's sort of difficult. This is not to put you on the spot, but it seems clear to me then, for example, you're pursuing one of three exhibitions over the next couple of years at, at the Bemis, and one of those is timed towards the elections mm-hmm. in 2020. So inherently we're talking about politics, and politics even more so now than than perhaps religion has become that um that lightning rod right. in polarized times. So we're in Nebraska, which is a right-leaning state. And your role as a curator and the institution of the Bemis, of course, it's not there to promote a particular point of view or ideology. It's there to promote art that has a message that has some artistic merit to it. Whether you like it or not, that's right. not the issue. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, you now are going to have to curate this exhibition in a way that does the challenging work of challenging the public, but not stepping over a line into some kind of ideological promotion. 
And so I'm kind of curious how you're going to navigate that over the next couple of years. Yes, I'm I'm kind of excited about that challenge, but also a little nervous about it. You know, I think that, um, you know, it, the, a lot of um, a lot of artists are more liberal leaning than other than, you know, maybe the funders that fund them or the location that they end up presenting their work in. And so there's always kind of a little bit of tension there regardless. But what I really am kind of looking forward to about this exhibition is to kind of do not necessarily like show something very broad, but, you know, be able to invite sort of two sides of the story of every issue is kind of what how I'm sort of conceptualizing it in my head and not necessarily being like right versus left and, you know, red versus blue, but just to come at things from different angles so that people can kind of see, okay, this is what some of these artists are grappling with right now because, um, you know, like one person is in rural America and this is, this issue is really important to them, but that same issue is important in more of an urban context and how is an artist dealing with it in that specific space. So kind of thinking about it in that way and kind of creating a conversation that can happen across all these different issues that will that are very prevalent, um, including the ones that you just brought up in terms of, you know, also gender rights and race and civil rights and everything. So, but yeah, it's a, you know, it, it's definitely, it's a different place than where I was before. So, and, you know, I've kind of always been in these little like blue dots of, of red seas a little bit most lately. So it'll, it'll be, I think it'll be great. <laughs> Conversation, I think, is all is what, <laughs> what it's all going to be about. It's it's that's what I think life is about. Mm -hmm. Are you able to switch this off in your life? And by switch this off, I'm wondering if you encounter the world through the lens of a curator. So, do you go to the grocery store and see how they've organized the the experience in a certain way, or um? Any other aspect of how you encounter the world around you outside of a museum? I think I do switch it off sometimes. I will say I do, especially, you know, after years and years of doing this now, um, I really have become very attuned to, like, the space that I'm in and, like, how things are presented in those spaces, but not necessarily, like, so specific as what you're saying. But I might notice, like, the lighting in a grocery store and be like, oh, like, the lighting in this Aldi is so much better than the lighting in the Aldi that I used to go to or something like that. Where I'm like, it just feels better in here and I want to spend more money in here because it feels better or something like that. You know, I'm like, oh, consumerism. Yeah, so I think I, I notice things like that. I, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit more of like an architecture nut than maybe I even like thought to begin with. So I really have been noticing that those kind of things like I feel much better in this space than I did in this space and why is that and whether that's a gallery space or you know just sort of a, a random building or school or something like that so um but it is kind of and it's kind of hard to switch it off I think the only time I really switch it off is like when you're in nature mm. you know and then you can't do anything you know like you can't curate nature it's just that is I mean you can obviously landscape architecture and all of that but I just mean like when you're in the wild right um, you can definitely turn it off a little bit more there, maybe. <laughs> so. so what's better, curating or creating? Oh, I think they're the same. A little bit. Uh, you know, people ask me a lot, 
oh, well, you have a BFA in photography. Do you still take pictures? And I'm like, besides, you know, pictures of my son and my dog and my, you know, things that people send me in the mail. Um, no, I don't, right? I don't have a camera that I use. I don't sort of do that anymore. Yeah, I take pictures of artwork that I like so that I can look at it later, <laughs> figure out why I liked it so much and maybe use it. But I do think that curating is creating. You know, I think that, you know, you're putting together a story for somebody, whether um, that story has a lot of players, right? A lot of characters, like many different artists or many different kinds of works of art by the same artist. So if it's a, you know, a big survey of their work versus something that might just be one specific project. But yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely a creative process. So you're definitely creating. Yeah. And you're, Sometimes you have to pull things out of thin air. So I guess that um, I don't think it's as hard like as being an artist and, you know, like at least I can hide behind the art a little bit, like you said earlier, right? Like the art is really the first thing that I want people to see. I don't, you know, they don't need to see me. They don't need to even read. Sometimes I'd barely read when I go and I just want to, I just want to experience. I might read what the curator or the, you know, the gallery has put up later. But yeah, so I kind of, I'm okay with people walking by my text. <laughs> I'd rather them just, you know, go experience the artwork. So, For people listening, the next time they go and experience an, an art installation or exhibition, beyond the didactics, the writing on the wall, what would you direct them to look out for to observe that a show has been curated for their benefit and experience? I guess, you know, it obviously depends on what, that show is, but, you know, I, I would pay attention to how things look, you know, does it feel, how does it feel in there? You know, do you feel like there's a flow that, do you feel like there's a path that you're supposed to walk or can you go either right or left and you feel the same way? Um, you know, how does the lighting feel? Like, do, do the works look like they're illuminated in the way that you, they look good and that you'd want that you know, if you really love it, you want it to look that way in your house. Um, yeah, I think like it's about a feeling. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen artwork in many different kinds of spaces and I think you can always make it look good depending on, you know, obviously what your budget is, but then, you know, just sort of, you can do things on a, on a low budget. So it doesn't really matter where you're where you're experiencing this. Um, but yeah, how is that actual experience? Like how, what are you taking away from it? Um, what are you like remembering that you want to kind of think about longer? I guess that's what I would say. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, 
download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Rachel Adams, Chief Curator and Director of Programs at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Rachel, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. You know, that can be kind of a difficult relationship sometimes. However, I never work with difficult artists. They're all amazing. All of them. (laughs) I hope they're all listening. I love them all. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.